Lawsuits, plagiarism, murder, misogyny, sharks, and underwater battles. Only one movie can lay claim to all of these. And of course, we're talking about the fourth Eon Productions James Bond movie, the 1965 movie Thunderball. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us for each episode of our podcast, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends about the show, too. That helps us get more listeners and do more shows. Thanks. Okay, Tom, we got some good feedback from some listeners, and they said, hey, we want more 30-minute type podcasts or around 30 minutes for commutes and that kind of thing, working yeah, out Yeah, we've been gym. doing some longer ones. Yeah, so we're going to do a few more shorter. That's not the saying we're going to not have any longer ones because sometimes we will, but this Thunderball podcast will be cut into two parts. This is going to be part one, which will be around 30, 35 minutes, and we're going to try to shoot for that in part two as well, 30, 35 minutes. So let's see how this goes for you, and hopefully you like it. All right. So I've got a question for the audience. Here's a trivia question for you. What 1958 movie was also produced by Cubby Broccoli? So technically, Cubby was the executive producer on Thunderball. Mm -hmm. This 1958 movie was directed by Terrence Young. The screenplay was done by Richard Maybaum. <laughs> okay. Cinematography by Ted Moore. And one of the stars in it was Luciana Paluzzi. Wow. Some f- familiar names. So what, do you know what that movie was? No, I don't. Okay. In the U.S., the movie got the title Tank Force. Never heard of it. But in the U.K., are you ready? Yeah. Right. All these Bond people associated with it. Back in 1958, uh-huh. the movie was called No Time to Die. <laughs> no kidding. And I'm, I'm not making that up. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, here we are again. <laughs> nice. No Time to Die. We're waiting. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to start this show with a tip of the hat to the late Earl Cameron, who played Pinder in Thunderball. After a long life of 102 years... Earl Cameron passed away on July 3rd. We'll miss you, Earl. All right, we all know the controversy around producing Thunderball and the lawsuits with Kevin McClory and so on. Ian Productions wanted Thunderball to be their first film, but the legal proceedings delayed this possibility until the film came out in 1965. Yeah, so this is a topic that we're assuming, if you're a big James Bond fan, You probably already know this. There are many James Bond-focused websites that have covered this controversy in depth, so we're not going to actually retread that story. If you want to really deep dive into this drama, check out Robert Seller's excellent book called The Battle for Bond. It's where we got some of today's discussion points. We also got some of them from the complete James Bond movie encyclopedia, newly revised edition by Stephen J. Rubin. Yeah. Now, on a side note, Harry Saltzman, of course, one of the producers of the James Bond movie, along with Cubby Broccoli, was born in Canada. He immigrated to the United States, and he became a high-ranking intelligence officer for the U.S. Yeah. Maybe that is why Ian Fleming entered into the movie deal with him, because really, up to that point, Harry hadn't produced any big-budget films. There's a great article online about this in Vanity Fair, called Harry the Spy, The Secret Prehistory of a James Bond Producer by David Camp. That was from September of 2012, September 18th. Now, I'm also intrigued with Harry's background because he actually produced the Harry Palmer movies, The Ipcris File, Funeral in Berlin, and Billion Dollar Brain, in between when he was producing these James Bond movies. 
So yeah. they were kind of overlapping. So it was, it was kind of interesting. He was doing the two very different spy movie types. Yeah, and those are pretty good time. movies. They are. Harry Palmer, yeah. That was cool stuff. We're going to do a couple of podcasts on those, too, in the future. Okay, so we're not going to go through every scene in Thunderball, but we're going to select scenes in order where we think there is something important to point out or bring to your attention that will enhance your next viewing of Thunderball. The massive, extensive underwater shots inspired by the silent enemy, we have a podcast out on that, is what makes Thunderball unique. We just released our podcast on the silent enemy, And that talks a lot about how it inspired Thunderball. In fact, at one point, William Fairchild, who wrote and directed The Silent Enemy, was up for the screenwriting and directing jobs on Thunderball. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be an underwater movie. You might as well have a guy who did a really good job with some underwater chariots and how they did that. Yeah. I mean, the storyline is straightforward. It's about the hijacking of a military aircraft that's carrying two nuclear weapons. And the hijacking is going to take place by Spectre. And then Spectre will hold the world through NATO for ransom for the equivalent of 100 million British sterling. Or they will use one of the bombs to destroy either a city in the UK or in the United States. Number two at Spectre is in charge of this operation, Emilio Largo. Now we should point out that many of the scenes that Austin Powers movies parody are from this movie. And we'll address those in our podcasts on Austin Powers when we do do that podcast. Similarly, due to the lawsuit, Kevin McClory pretty much did a remake of Thunderball in the 1983 movie, Never Say Never Again. And again, we'll address those similarities when we do the podcast on Never Say Never Again. Okay, I like this storyline. This is something that was a relevant threat then in 1965 and an even more relevant threat today. The pre-title sequence is intriguing and revealing. Yeah, actually, Dan, before we talk about the pre-title, I wanted to talk about one quick thing here. Okay. They shot the previous Bond movies in a standard format. Right. And in Thunderball, they moved to Panavision. And that changed the aspect ratio to widescreen, and it forced them to reshoot the gun barrel sequence. Uh, yeah. So for the first three movies, and we've talked this in other po- about this in other podcasts, Bob Simmons, the stuntman, is the person you see turn and shoot the gun. And you can tell he's a stuntman if you notice how stable he is. Yeah, he is. And Sean Connery comes in, and he turns, and he kind of wobbles a little bit. <laughs> but going forward then, they use this Panavision for the next Sean Connery movies. And then they kept that format where the actual Bond was the actor was the one who took over going forward. Yeah, I like what the actors in there doing their own gun barrel sequence. I think that's that's good. Yeah, and then what, one other little more subtle thing is in Thunderball, the pre-title sequence starts with the white dots that we're used to seeing, mm-hmm. and then it it kind of gets into a white one white dot. They merge into one white dot from the gun barrel, mm-hmm. and the movie starts within that dot. So it's like it's masked. And then the, then the, the circle opens up and you see the whole frame and they didn't do that until Thunderball. Yes. Okay. So in the pre-title sequence, there's a funeral going on and the coffin is emblazoned with the initials JB. Okay. So for a second, we're supposed to be thinking, wow, well, geez, this could be James Bond. (laughs) Of course. Start the movie off with us being dead. Yeah, of course. uh, We must think for a second. So, until it's revealed, of course, that James Bond is watching the funeral procession leaving from the church from an outdoor balcony of the church. 
Yeah, the funeral was for Jacques Bouvard, Spectre number six, who Bond reveals had killed two of his colleagues. So standing with his French MI6 contact, he's watching the widow get into the car, opening the door for herself. Switch to the chateau, the widow arriving, and entering a room in which James Bond awaits. Yeah, wait, how did Bond... Wait, how did he get there? Yeah. How did he beat the widow? How the heck did Bond get there ahead of the widow when he was watching the widow get into the car? Well, we all wonder that a little bit. I mean, you gotta wonder that. Well, it, it's really answered. Bond confronts the widow expressing his condolences, then boom, punches the widow. (laughs) I love that that part. And and as we know, the widow really is Jacques Bouvard. And a very good fight ensues. And eventually Bond gets the better of Jacques and strangles him with a fireplace poker. Nice. Okay. That's cool. Now that means the movie actually starts out with a fake funeral. Yeah. Where have we seen that trope before and after this movie? Let's see. If you listen to our podcast on the movie, The Secret Agent, which was a 1936 movie, Yeah, you'll find something very similar where there was a fake funeral to start the movie. Yeah, uh, The Bond movie, right after Thunderball, you only live twice. Bond is part of a funeral at sea. Yeah. And then in the movie Bond... His the own. Movie, <laughs> yeah, his own death, exactly. <laughs> and then in the movie Live and Let Die, it starts out with a fake funeral procession, really, that ter- ends up turning into a real funeral procession. Yeah. So there are other movies that have fake funerals in them. Many of them aren't spy movies, but this is a trope I'm sure we'll see again and again. Yeah. And so as Bond leaves the room, he stops for a second and throws some flowers on Bouvard as the doors are opening and Bouvard's guards are coming in. Yeah, this is classic Bond. And we're going to see this in in future movies. I have to do one more thing before I leave. I'm I'm ready to leave, but wait, I got to stop and do something yeah, else. Yeah, and I always wonder, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Yeah, those extra seconds can cost you. Anyway, Bond must escape, and he exits the room. He straps into his jetpack, putting on a helmet, of course, and up he goes with Bouvard's guys shooting at him. He descends near the DB5, and he escapes. Love him spraying water at his pursuers from the Aston Martin. Water. Like they could not sidestep the streams of water. That always got me in the movie. It's like, you know, step aside. You won't get knocked over. But no, they get knocked over. But anyway, he he does it. But it's water. That's the important part. And that morphs into the title sequence with the women swimming underwater. And we know the whole movie is about water and underwater fights, yachts, planes in the water. So Bond shooting streams of water at his pursuers at the end of the pre-title sequence was clever and foreshadows the rest of the movie. So yes, water is key element of this movie, but I want to know how much water was used to, to spray these henchmen. Yeah. Right? I mean, they, in reality, they actually had like fire hoses. Yeah. Up. I mean, it seemed like a lot. Where would all of that water fit? Yeah. Where would all of the gadgets that are in the DB? I mean. Clever <laughs> that cue. Uh, willing kinda, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we assume he got to the chateau ahead of Bouvard. We want to come back to that by jetpack. That's why it was waiting on the veranda for him. So that's cool. But <laughs> escaping, Bond dons his safety helmet before taking off. This always gets you. And you're looking at that thinking, wait a minute, you could have stop and put on your safety helmet when guys are shooting at you? Uh, yeah. Why? Well, the jetpack, being a real device, was cool to use in the film and productions brought in two guys who could fly this thing and it was flown by bill Souter, 
who demanded using a helmet, which is why Sean Connery, as Bond, puts on a helmet when he takes off. <laughs> so we covered the jetpack in our earlier podcast, Spy Movies and the Real World Connections, Part 1. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to go over that turf in any more detail. You can listen to that podcast if you want more details of the jetpack in that movie. Now, the thing, uh, the other thing about the jetpack here, Dan, is you say that we think that that's how we got to the Chateau so fast. Sure. But the DB5's outside. So did he take the jetpack and did the MI6 agent well, drive the DB5 over? The MI6 agent is there waiting for him when he lands with the jetpack. So I'd say, yeah, that's so a good interpretation. Over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, jetpacks have been used in movies as far back as the 1949 serial King of the Rocketmen. All the way through The Rocketeer, Iron Man, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, mm. Return of the Jedi, Jetsons, among others, right? The, the concept is kind of big, but the first movie to actually show you a real one yeah. is here. Yeah, this is real. Ball. Right. This thing really worked. I think you can get about like 30 seconds out of it or something like that. Yeah, some it was something like that. A very short time. Yeah, it was short. All right, so that ends the pre-title sequence, and and as Dan said, we morph into the title sequence. Mm -hmm. And it has a few interesting tidbits associated with it. First, we have Maurice Binder's use of nudes for the first time swimming. So we have the first time we see in the Bond title sequence is the naked female body with stuff projecting. It was filmed in black and white, and then in post-production, they added the color to it. The second tidbit is that the singer of the theme song, who was Tom Jones, Mm -hmm. Well, the song ends with a very long note after a very forceful singing, and it's a loud last note. And supposedly, Tom Jones passed out while singing <laughs> that note. And he said, you know, I, was, I started singing, and these words the effect of, I started singing, and the next thing I know, I was doing something else. And, but it was only a nine-second note, which is a long note when you've been singing as full as he was. It was a long, loud note, yeah. It was a long, loud note. But yeah. if you look at the late Bill Withers, who just recently passed, he had lovely day. He held a note for 18 seconds, almost immediately after holding a note for 10 seconds. And then with aha, we get a 20 second note out of Morton Harkett in the, in the song summer moved on. We remember aha because they did the theme song for the living daylights. Okay. So we see Emilio Largo played flawlessly by Adolfo Celli. I mean, the guy's great. He parks his Thunderbird in a taxi zone on a street in Paris. The gendarme sees it and tells, he starts approaching him and he sees that, oh, wait, this is Emilio Largo and he lets him go. So. <laughs> yeah, the, the, and the look that Largo shoots him yeah. is priceless. I love that. Yeah. It was kind of like, kind of felt to me like, you talking to me? Yeah, he didn't have from, to say a word. Yeah. <laughs> it was from cool. 11, 11 years later with the movie Taxi Driver. You talking to me? Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Thing. So anyway, Largo enters the building, but on the, on the building, there's a sign that reads in French, Centre International d'Assistance aux Personnes déplacées, or the International Brotherhood for the Assistance of Stateless pe- People, or Stateless Once Persons. Once again, I let you have the hard thing to say. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a stateless person is one basically without a country, so I think. So this is kind of a play on Spectre, I think, being this international organization not affiliated with a country. This building is actually still there at number 35 Avenue de Lou. That's hard to say. D apostrophe E-Y-L-A-U in Paris. So you could actually go see this thing. 
Now, Ian Fleming actually took the concept of the originally Spectre was going to be a mafia group. And and actually the first cut, it was going to be Russians. Yeah. And Ian Fleming decided they didn't want him to be Russians because with the Cold War, he didn't want two years in to all of a sudden have the Cold War go away, peace break out, and then them going against the Russians would look bad. Yeah. So and made Spectre this international organization. Gave him a lot more flexibility, too, in, in future stories to be able to just not tie it all to Russians all the time. All right. So Largo goes, he's going to enter this conference room, and he has this remote control, and he pushes a button. The doors open up, re- revealing this wonderfully designed, Ken Adam design conference yeah. room. Yeah. Now, if you listened to the podcast we did earlier on The Spy Next Door, in that movie, Bob Ho has to go into a secret room to meet the team. He picks up this pen from this assortment of pens, and the doors open up for him. Yeah. Were these scenes inspired by Thunderball? I don't know, but it came after. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? I mean, you see a lot of remote door things uh, in many movies and Star Trek and everything else. But anyway, it's kind of cool that Largo is doing this in 1965. So he enters the conference room through these secret doors, and it's a Spectre meeting. And many of the Spectre personnel are sitting in chairs alongside a long walkway. No table. So yeah, And that was actually Ken Adam when he was looking at that. He's like, we've seen this before in so many movies where you've got the, the big conference table and everybody around it. So he decided, let's not have the table. Yeah. yeah. It looks awkward, actually. It looks like, oh, it's a little weird. But then, you know, Largo can walk up and down the path in between everybody. So that's kind of neat. Number one, of course, is hidden from the chest up behind the screen. Largo's number two. He's revealing his plans about this uh, hijacking of the nuclear weapons just after number nine gets electrocuted for embezzlement. That's a great scene. In the book now, note that there was a woman that was being held for ransom and this number nine agent raped her. So they changed that to embezzlement here. So it's a great scene as you see everyone sweating it out before Nine's chair sizzles him and afterwards. And as the chair lowers beneath the floor and then comes back up empty and smoldering with a residue all over it, it's just a great touch and a great set. It reminds me of uh, Sanchez in License to Kill as he tells the president of Isthmus that, hey, you just have a job for life. (laughs) You just don't know how long it's going to be. <laughs> you just don't know how long it's going to be. No, uh, taking some something from the real world here, number five actually has a line they added later, uh, you know, later into the script process. Our consultation fee for the British train robbery, uh-huh. 250,000 pounds. The great train robbery was a real train robbery of 2.6 million pounds from the Royal Mail train heading from Glasgow to London on August 8th, 1963. Yeah. And this means then that Spectre got a 10% cut of the haul as a consulting fee. Yeah. Again, it shows how Ian Productions and their writers uh, integrate real-world events into their films. Remember, of course, Dr. No, the Duke of Wellington portrait at Dr. No's lair. That was cool, too. It's great. They just tie... He just says, where's something that's happening in the real world? Let's tie this into this movie. Yeah. Perfect. Largo's plan, of course, to hijack a NATO flight with two nuclear weapons aboard and hold NATO and the world ransom for 100 million pounds sterling, like we said. Meanwhile, Bond is rehabbing at Shrublands when he meets Count Lippe. Now, he notices this tattoo on his forearm, and it's a square with a spike through it. So he calls Money Penny to check it out, and he says, I think it's a tong sign. So he wanted Money Penny to check it out, even though Bond's rehabbing and kind of off duty, really. So after some talk about it, 
how he's supposed to be rehabbing, Bond tells Moneypenny something that he would not say today in a Bond film. <laughs> There's she, a lot in, in this movie that you wouldn't say today. <laughs> yeah. If she doesn't do this for him when he returns, he says, I'll put you across my knee, to which she says, on yogurt and lemon juice, I can hardly wait. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> that is not happening today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rightfully absolutely so. Not. Right. So Bond snoops around Lippe's room when he's out. And a head and face bandaged guy starts to walk in as Bond is there. And then he retreats before he gets I, through the door. I love this scene because it shows Bond doing the more mundane spy stuff. Yeah, kind of snooping around, checking There's things not out. gadgets here. He's just checking things out. Mm-hmm. And I wish they did more of that today. Yeah. And then, but again, before he leaves the room here, he comes back and takes a grape out of the fruit bowl and he eats it. And then he leaves. Just like he threw the flowers on Bouvard. You know, I'll take an extra moment to do that. But as he exits the room, the head bandaged guy sees him. Now, timing, I'm asking this. If he didn't coolly stop for the grape, would the bandaged headed guy have missed him exiting? He might have. I think he might have. So being cool has its price. So Bond's there in rehab and is getting examined by Patricia, played by Molly Peters. She was fabulous in that yeah, role. she was. She was terrific. And he kisses her against her will. And he finds out from her about the bandaged guy that it's this Mr. Angelo guy recovering from a car accident, supposedly. Now, and yeah, hang on, let me stop you there, because you just said Mr. Angelo guy. Yeah, I know. That's what she says. Yeah. Now, maybe at Trublin's, that's what they called him. So they called him so that they didn't know who this guy was. Yeah. But his last name was really Palazzi in the movie. Yeah. And so he was Angelo Palazzi. So it wasn't Mr. Angelo. It really should have been Mr. Palazzi or just Angelo. Yeah. Or and maybe. She calls him Mr. A Mr. Angelo. So I don't know if it was a ruse on Shrublands yeah. or something else going on there. Yeah. It may have been that. So she puts Bond on a rack for 15 minutes and someone comes in, Lippe, and turns up the speed so high that it almost kills Bond. I, I just immediately wonder why is that? Why is a, a speed like that on this thing if it can almost kill you? But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless he turns it way up. <laughs> and Patricia saves him just in time. So he says, oh, man, I must be six inches taller. And she says, we'll put you in the steam room. That might shrink you back to size. Now, she <laughs> says, all right. I think this is a double entendre here. Come on. You think? I, I'm sure as he's been making advances on her all day, she says something when she puts him on the rack, something like, it's the first time I felt safe all day. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll shrink you back down to six inches, whatever. Okay. All right. Bond returns the favor to Lippy in the steam machine by turning up the heat and blocking the opening of the doors with a mop handle, which was okay. Oddly, when he walks out, he says, see you later, alligator. It's like, whoa. That ought to be a trivia question somewhere. Does Bond ever say anywhere, see you later, alligator? I mean, it's like, okay. After a while, crocodile, don't get wise, BBIs. No, see you later, alligator is here. Okay, we got that. Uh, so anyway, Bond being trapped on the rack, he used that as a way to have sex with Patricia. Patricia. Oh, boy. All right. Okay. Yeah, now this is one of those scenes that doesn't translate 
at least in the U.S. for at least the last decade, probably longer. Longer, yeah. In my opinion, Bond pretty much rapes Patricia. He forced her to have sex with him by blackmailing her yeah. about her having her boss find out about this. Yeah. This may have worked in the 60s, but it's one of those things you always hear that Bond is too misogynistic. This doesn't carry out for well into today's environment. No. And I think it's even compounded later when after he blackmail rapes her, and again, my words. Yeah. He's in bed with the mink mitten massaging her, and she's very compliant there. Mm-hmm. So that just doesn't feel like that would work, that you would be kind of raped, and then all of a sudden, yeah, well, let's hop into the real bed now. Yeah. All right, the Duval Angelo switch. So we're still back at Troublance. All right, we know that the plan is to switch Mr. Angelo for Major Duval, who was to fly the NATO flight with the two nuclear weapons. Angelo has undergone plastic surgery, voice lessons, all this stuff to get ready for this assignment. I think somewhere along the line they said two years or something, which I always wondered, how can they be planning this two years ago knowing this guy was going to fly a NATO flight with two nuclear bombs? But nonetheless... I think I heard oh, that somewhere. Oh, come on. Where's your willingness, <laughs> willing suspension of disbelief? Yeah, you got to have that. So the plan is for him to hijack the plane and deliver the nukes to Largo and Spectre. And he's being paid well for this, $100,000. But as this begins to unfold, he wants more money. He wants 250000 Okay. Greed kills, Dan. Yeah, greed kills. That's going to maybe be his undoing. So Derval is killed by Fiona Volpe, Lippe, and Mr. Angelo. And the switch is done. Hmm. <laughs> a person doubles as another person, in this case by plastic treatments, he says. Yeah. We see doubles in a lot of films, including The Man Who Haunted Himself with Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And I can think connection. of about 20 other movies that have this some sort of this premise, either by plastic surgery, masks, or twins. In our podcast on Mission Impossible, taking a a television show to the big screen, we have a discussion on the use of masks for concealment or for taking over somebody's identity. We see this a lot in Mission Impossible. And my favorite example is in Mission Impossible 3, when they they kidnap Owen Davian, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, That's a great great scene, the way they do that. Now, to be fair to Thunderball, most of these movies don't use plastic surgery. Right. You generally are using masks or twins, mm-hmm. probably is the most prevalent way for them to be able to assume somebody else's identity. Yeah. All right. So, Dervalis change into the pajamas that the bandaged man had been seen in before, and they're pretending Angelo died and is being removed. So, Bond, though, finds Derval's body, and Lippy sees him. So, the new Derval, Mr. Angelo, Durval lookalike gets through security at the military base. He sits through the briefing and gets aboard the Vulcan with the two nuclear bombs. Of course, by 1961, when the novel was published, we had lots of atomic bombs in the world, and there was an arms race between the Soviet Union and the U.S., so atomic weapons were on everyone's mind. So the basis of the story, really, is based in real life. People were worried about a nuclear war and atomic weapons. Here, two atomic weapons are hijacked by Spectre, who threatened to destroy a major city. So, even though Ian Productions did not make this their first Bond film, in 1965, the world was very aware of the threat from major powers building up supplies of nuclear weapons, so the topic was hot. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was just a couple of years before. 
Yeah, and also for, for, for you trivia players, I've been to a few trivia nights where the question, what type of nuclear bombs were used in Thunderball? Mm. And actually two of them weren't even James Bond trivia contest. And the answer, Dan, is? I think they were MOS types. Right. I think they changed the name of it later, but it was Ministry of Supply type. Yeah, they call them MOS types. Yeah. One of those, keep in the back of your minds if you ever go to a trivia game, because yeah. that one I hear quite a lot. Yeah, now it's Ministry of Defense, but yeah, cool. All right, so the nuclear weapons are being hijacked by Spectre, and they'll use them to extort the 100 million pounds. As the storyline goes, this is a believable one. Really? Wait, nuclear weapons disappearing? Come on. Yeah. Have nuclear weapons ever been lost in real life? Uh, yeah. Basically, by the time Ian Fleming writes Thunderball, there have been three incidents where the United States lost nuclear weapons or the core of nuclear weapons. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Where did that go? And just about when Ian Fleming was writing Thunderball in January 1961, even though he had conferred already with Kevin McClory and others, here is what was happening in the real world. In January 61, a B-52 carrying two 24-megaton nuclear bombs crashed while taking off from an air base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. One of the weapons sank in swampy farmland, and the core was never really found. And, of course, the military lied about this thing and so on. But they actually had to buy an easement to the property, the military, so that no one else would go snooping around trying to find this nuclear weapon that they couldn't find. Oh... And there were two previous incidents of lost nuclear weapons or cores before this, 1950 and 1956. So there's a detailed article on this, my mental floss article from November 29, 2007, Pyrex Sass, on this very subject. So a hijacking of a nuclear aircraft is very believable. And the U.S. lost nuclear weapons without anyone even trying to take them. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Ah, so yeah, we got a good core for the movie here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so one other really quick thing, if you look at the bombs, there's stamping on them that say handle like eggs. Mm. Yeah. In 1945, RAF used the stamp, do not jar, handle like eggs on their gyroscopes. And you actually see this still stamped on gyroscopes today. Yeah. All right. So Bond is at Shrublin's rehabbing. He discovers something's going on. There's some exchanges of putting Bond in jeopardy and Bond putting Count Lippe in jeopardy. And there Bond discovers something is happening with Mr. Angelo, but he doesn't know exactly what's going on. So as we said before, Bond sees this this tattoo on Lippe with the spike and the square, and and he's thinking it might be this tongue thing. I always think it's interesting uh, how this sophisticated enemy wears spectre rings, tattoos, all this other stuff to let everyone else know who they are. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're a secret organization, but yeah. check us out. Yeah. Uh, as Bond will say later, vanity has its price. Ah. All right. So we, the audience, know a lot of stuff that's going on before Bond knows or before MI6 knows or NATO or anyone else. We know Angelo and Draval have been switched. We know that he's he's had plastic surgery we know they're going to take over this flight with the two nuclear weapons and so on. We know all the stuff that's been going on at Troublance. And 
okay, now these guys have to figure this all out. I kind of like it more when we discover it with the characters in the in the movie. I think it's more exciting. But well, so, you know, if you see a TV show Columbo, you yeah. see what happens, and then Columbo has to figure out how. Yeah, that's exciting. That's true. Yeah, that was a pretty good show. That's actually my favorite TV show ever. Yeah. All right. So now this all happened at Shrublands, yeah. and we're going to leave Shrublands here in just a second. Now, at the time they filmed this, it was a hotel. Yeah. And now it's a corporate office, and we know that, Dan, because you and I got there. Yeah, we Actually, were there. We got some great uh, pictures from the outside of the building, of course, and we saw where the car was parked, the Thunderbird. We saw where his DB5 was parked and stood in the very spots. We saw where the hearse was, taking out Mr. Angelo, which was really Durval. Very cool. Yeah. Great. And there is a shot of there where there's a Rolls Royce in that parking lot and it's Cubbies. Ah, Cubby Broccoli's. I missed that. Yeah, now, cool. one other thing, as, as we're leaving Shrublands, I want to just point out this one little thing. At one point, he's talking to, to Patricia, and he says to her, another time, another place. Oh, yeah. That was the title of a movie that Sean Connery did with Lana Turner earlier. It was oh. actually one of his first movies. Oh, cool. That's neat. Another time, another place. All right, this looks like a great place to wrap up part one of Thunderball, and we're going to release part two of Thunderball next. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Thanks for joining us for part one of Thunderball. Tune in next week for part two. Join us for each episode of our podcast show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends about the show, too. That helps us get more listeners and do more shows. Thanks.